0: Welcome to A Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's A Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. And just a reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we do in the studio. So our apologies there. But as I say, every week we want to keep the programming going. So COVID-19 or not, we're here to give you a program each week. Now, today, I would like to introduce you to Cheryl Bruce, who is doing a PhD in cultural studies under the supervision of Dr. Colleen Renahan. So, welcome to GradChat, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. I, I guess, Cheryl, before we get started, because... You're actually working in an area that I, I find fascinating, but can you give us a bit of a background of where you've come from before actually wanting to do a PhD in, in cultural studies?
1: Sure. I mean, I, I came to it in sort of a roundabout way. <laughs> I did my undergrad straight out of high school in music education. and right. I never really particularly wanted to teach. It was always just sort of a backup. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I stayed and I did a master's in performance, which was really fun. And I'm really happy that I did it. But it turns out that it's really hard to make a living solely in performance. And I remember, (laughs) I remember one of my professors saying to me, it doesn't matter if you want to be a teacher or not, if you're a musician, You will end up teaching at some point in your life. (laughs) (laughs) That turned out to be very true. (laughs) So I took a year off. I I did my undergrad and my master's at Western, but I'm actually from the Picton area. I grew up in Picton. So I came back here to be with my family and I ended up doing uh, an education degree at Queen's and then I went into teaching.
0: Um, so, <laughs> Famous last word, eh? Right.
1: <laughs> so I've been a high school teacher for about 10 years, and the PhD was always something that I wanted to do. It was just a question of finding the time and sort of the means to do it, I guess.
0: Right. Um, mm.
1: And I, I didn't really know about the opportunities. I always sort of thought that my path was set out if I did an undergrad and a master's in music then of course my PhD would have to also be in music but it turns out there are other options and I was really excited to learn about the cultural studies program at Queen's which is interdisciplinary and was accepting of my ideas so I looked at that program well three years ago this is my second year of the program um, and happily got accepted and I've, I've been there for the last two years and I'm still kind of teaching on the side, which is nice. I have that sort of part-time, but I'm really excited to be pursuing the PhD now and doing what I really wanted to do kind of from the beginning. It's funny how things fall into place after a while.
0: That's true. And, and do you think I – mean, I'm, I'm sort of uh, looking into the future here. Do you see this as just something that you've always been passionate about wanting to do or is it you're hoping to use this to – take your career into another direction?
1: I've taught various levels I mean I'm qualified to teach high school and that's what I've been doing I also teach part-time at Loyalist in Belleville at the college right so I really like the higher levels where it's not so much about classroom management it's more about content and making connections with people so I mean, I would like to pursue teaching at a higher level to some extent. I mean, I don't really know where this will take me. I'm just hoping that it will mm-hmm. add to my possibilities, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, I, well, I think with, I mean, people are going to find out about your research topic shortly. But I, I think with some of the work that you will be doing, both in your research and some of your extracurriculars, that might give you some other ideas too of where this can take you because one of the nice things as we know about being at a university and you kind of mentioned it is collaborations and so some people will say well why cultural studies when you're a music buff type thing well that's the beauty of a program like the cultural studies and and within cultural studies there's a lot of collaborations or teachers from across different fields mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I've I've been able to make connections in so many different faculties outside of music you know cultural studies doesn't have dedicated faculty so they draw from different mm-hmm. areas which is amazing because that also informs my research I'm able to bring in different areas it's not just about music which I think can sort of kind of put you in a box sometimes but to be able to, right. to broaden those topics and to be able to look at things from different perspectives I think is really valuable
0: and I think people are going to enjoy listening to you talk about your research topic even though like you said you're in the beginning stages really of it mm-hmm. but so let's go into that because you no know, time like the present as they say <laughs> so your research topic is the role of women orchestral conductors particularly within the Canadian context. So can you give me just a bit of an overview of what you mean by that? And then we'll get into some questions, some more specific questions.
1: Sure. Well, Again, I kind of came at this topic in a roundabout way. That seems to be the story of my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it gets you there somewhere somehow though. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And
1: again, I think it's kind of fascinating because it means that you look at things from a different perspective. But so I've been a practicing musician since I completed my masters. I haven't been as involved as I would maybe have liked to have been over the past few years because of other commitments. But just I've been considering my own experiences you know, going through education and as a musician. And as a young musician, I was really discouraged in school from pursuing music as a career. I had two guidance counselors in high school. One of them told me, women don't go into music. And the other one told me, well, that's silly. You're never going to make any money at it, and so
0: that's nice. Of... That's that's nice and positive, isn't <laughs> no, it? <like>? Right, right. <laughs> great advice. For my right, way to crush your passion.
1: <laughs> well, for some people, I think it might have crushed it, but for me, I just get feisty and think, "No, you're wrong." Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean. I I pushed through. It was something that I was really passionate about. And I never really felt that I was discriminated against in university. I don't think that it came from that. But the more I started looking into things, I thought there really aren't a lot of women in classical music in general. And then I thought, well, why is that? And then when I looked a little bit closer, really what it is, is there aren't women in leadership positions. Right. So my right. idea originally was to look at women in general in leadership positions, but that's such a broad category mm. that I decided to narrow it a little bit more. And what's the ultimate leadership position in classical music? The conductor. So it's such a position of power, and I think that has a lot to do with why women have been excluded from that position for so many years. And then I started looking at the Canadian context because I was working on another project before I came to Queens that had to do with women in music. And I noticed that there are women involved in that role within Canada And we never talk about Canada. When we think about orchestras, we think about the big orchestras in the U.S. and in Europe. Yes. And we don't really think about the Canadian context. So I thought it would be really interesting to pursue that a little bit more and to engage with the fact that women are involved in Canada. But why don't we talk about it? And why don't we look at the reasons that women have been excluded, particularly from those big orchestras? And what does that mean?
0: So can I be naive here? So you're talking about the Canadian context. To be honest, I've always I've been brought up with, um, for instance, classical music because my uncle was piano, harpsichord, and double bass player in various uh, orchestras. But that was in in the UK. Okay. And you know, I, I can name, as you mentioned, I can name uh, those in the uh, orchestras in the US and in the UK and things. I can't actually name a Canadian one and I know your topic is looking at the women in the leadership role but I think it could be down the track and I'm going on on a tangent here Mm -hmm. Canadian orchestral music in general is not as in my opinion and I've only been here 13 years and I haven't really gone into it too much doesn't seem to be as well known as in other parts of the world absolutely so that I mean that's uh, you know an environmental thing that we need to look at as well.
1: And and that's sort of where the idea came from. I mean, I narrowed it down to leadership and then I thought mm-hmm. I would really like to concentrate on Canada because I think that that needs to be I need I think people need to be more aware of what's happening in Canada that we do have a really rich cultural scene that doesn't get a lot of attention. Right. And the interesting thing is that A lot of the conductors who are active in Canada, and this is kind of a worldwide trend, is that the really big conductors aren't really attached to separate orchestras anymore. They sort of travel around. So a lot of those conductors that are active in the US or active in Europe also make appearances in Canada.
0: And so so they're not necessarily even Canadian. They're perhaps European or something. So they're not even from the country.
1: Exactly. Yes, that's... That seems to be largely the case. The Canadian women conductors who are active in Canada are largely associated with smaller orchestras.
0: So it's more like a chamber orchestra?
1: Oh, I don't mean smaller in size. I just mean smaller in terms of reputation. So um, okay, like the Hamilton Orchestra, for example, or Victoria as opposed to Vancouver.
0: Right, okay. So rather than the big city ones That's that right. you would right okay and do some of these orchestras the smaller ones i guess they don't travel as much either across the country so that again that's another reason for them not being known as well
1: yes that's exactly right a lot of them are semi-professional or sort of not community orchestras but very much based in their communities and, and don't travel a lot
0: so what um I don't know if you know these numbers yet, but what kind of numbers are we talking about? If you look at male versus female conductors in Canada, what's the ratio there?
1: I don't have exact numbers. I haven't really gotten into the thick of things yet. I've just done my first qualifying exam, so I'm looking.
0: For... Oh no, so you, you got a fair bit to go, but that's good. Yeah. It's a good start. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm hoping to do some ethnographic research in the future. I'm hoping to talk to some of these people, but I, I haven't quite gotten there yet. But it's also really hard to pin down numbers because they're changing so frequently. And because these conductors are traveling between orchestras, they're not necessarily attached to one orchestra all the time. So the conductor of Hamilton, for example, also conducts in the US.
0: Right. Yeah. So will you be looking at both numbers as well as uh, rates of pay, whether they're full time or part time? Is that the kind of things you're going to be looking at?
1: I'm interested in that, definitely. But what I'm most interested in is experience. What is it like to be a female conductor? What was it like to get to that position? What sort of barriers did they experience along the way? And also what supports are in place? Did they have a good experience? And I'm also interested in how musicians react. Is it different to have a female at the helm as opposed to a man? Right. What do they bring to the position? All of those things.
0: Can you tell people, our audience as they say, uh, how do people in general become conductors? Are they, do they start off as a musician and then they move into wanting to be conductors or do people go straight to wanting to be a conductor?
1: That's a really good question. There are various avenues to becoming a conductor, but it's generally accepted that they would be a musician first, because in order to understand the score and in order to interpret the music, you have to have an understanding of what the instruments are doing, what's happening in the music. So generally, it would be somebody who would be very well trained on an instrument, Often it's somebody who comes from a piano background and maybe started as a rehearsal pianist and and comes from that. Or it could be an instrumentalist. And then this is one of my critiques in trying to get to that position. The education that goes into being a conductor varies, but getting a degree in conducting is a fairly new thing. That wasn't always the case. It used to be you'd be kind of handpicked from the orchestra or the traditional model is going through sort of a master-apprentice relationship where you find a conductor who's already really successful in the role and they then train you to kind of conduct in their image so right that serves to really exclude a lot of people first of all because that conductor has to be willing to work with you and second of all it's a very prestigious position so there are only so many apprentices that those people would be willing to take on yes so it's a pretty exclusive role and it's difficult to to find first of all an avenue into the position and then to find work because there are very limited jobs available as well
0: it's interesting you say There's there's the new thing now about getting a degree because I never even thought about that in music I mean I know when you're going through music there's different grades and exams you can take as you're learning the instrument mm. things like that but sitting exams is is different to perhaps going to a university to get a degree I mean right? well I mean you... is that happening in Europe as well or is that more here or in North America oh that's a good question
1: I mean I don't mean music degrees in general I think music degrees have been around for quite some time well, over a century, a couple of centuries, even.
0: Right, that's true. And particularly in the bachelor's, I'm thinking like the conservatorium places, uh, uh, conservatorium music halls and things.
1: Yes, that's right, exactly. And the first music degrees, I think, were through conservatories that became associated with universities. But what's new is getting a degree specifically in conducting. That used to be something right. that very much came out of the master apprentice tradition rather than having a piece of paper that says you can conduct. Um, right. So the the problem with that is that going through the master apprentice model doesn't guarantee you a job but it makes it a little bit easier because you then have this champion that's sort of helping you helping to lift you up whereas if you go through the university and get a degree there's no guarantee that you're going to be employed at the end of it or there's no guarantee that you're going to be employed where you hope to be I think a lot of underemployment is happening at that level
0: well that's where the I mean if you think of a university degree that's where you need the practicum component which means as you're saying making yourself like an apprentice to someone (laughs) so it's a bit of a catch-22 isn't it
1: yeah i mean it still exists if you do a conducting degree there's still a component of of having that practical experience there has to be but it's harder Mm -hmm. because you're in a class of several people everybody has to have their turn on the podium so then it becomes more like a master class where you you're watching other people which is valuable as well you're watching other people and, and getting their critiques but it's less of a one-on-one kind of situation.
0: So how does it work in Canada? I mean, what I'm I mean, where in Canada can people do this sort of learning to be a conductor?
1: Well, that's a good question and, and that's what I really want to look more into because again, the Canadian context
0: isn't really talked
1: about. I had some classes in conducting when I did my undergraduate degree in education, um all education students have to do at least one class so that you understand the basic patterns that are used and how to read a score. But that doesn't really train you to be a conductor at the higher levels. It trains you to do the most basic timekeeping. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what a lot of people think conducting is, but there's so much more to it. There's interpretation of the score, there's understanding gestures and making connections with the musicians and communicating Um, Mm non-verbally. And that comes with practice and it comes with honestly having, having somebody who can show you at least in the first stages so that show you gestures or give possible interpretations, so that you can then take that and make it your own.
0: Make it your own so what kind of changes do you think we need I mean I know you're early in your in your work but what kind of changes do you think need to be made in order to encourage more equitable hiring practices for women conductors
1: I think that there are a lot of things at play I think that it's not just about women I think classical music itself has been a fairly exclusionary field traditionally it's been the realm of white men, to be frank. Right. So I think that it's not just about women. The reason I chose to speak about women is because it's been my own experience. But I think the field itself needs to be much more open to people of color, to the LGBTQ community, much more open okay. about people in general. And not worrying so much about tradition. I think that that really puts a lot of people off. You know, when you go to a concert.
0: Everyone's dressed to the nines.
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Everyone's dressed perfectly. And there are these conventions that you're expected to follow where, mm-hmm. you know, if if they play, if the orchestra plays an entire symphony, if somebody happens to clap in between movements, that's a no-no. People will look at you. Oh,
0: yeah. I'd be <laughs> hopeless because I always do. and then I, Or I'm ready to clap and then realize uh, Put your hands
1: away, Claire. <laughs> right, right. And so, I wonder what the reason for that is. Is it because we're afraid that we're distracting the musicians, or are we just following this tradition that we've been told we have to follow? Why can't we appreciate the music? So, I think, right. I think that needs to be more open, first of all. But in terms of women, um, you know, one of the things that I looked at for my qualifying exam was the representation of conductors in media. I don't think that we see uh. conductors who aren't white men. If you look right. at TV shows and books, I mean, I looked through my son's books, um, like first classical music books, and they all show pictures of white men in tuxedos. Why right. can't we have representations of women? Why can't we, yeah. you know, if we change our experience, if we change what we see, I think that that we'll start to open some doors. And then I also think that perhaps the master apprentice model needs to be looked at as well. It's not always right. a safe space. It's a model where you're often alone with your mentor. And I think that a lot of people are put off by that as well, especially right. in these times of you know the Me Too movement and things like that. Um, right. I think that we need to be a little more open in accepting different ideas and thinking about how that model might be changed.
0: I mean, it is scary for orchestras in general, I would imagine, because like you said, the the conductor is so important to make the piece of music work Mm -hmm. with everyone involved. Um, It's almost like we need opportunities where the apprentice can be giving a concert with the master next door to keep an eye on them kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's not enough outlets for them to really practice.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there aren't enough outlets. You're absolutely right. We have so few orchestras in Canada to begin with. But I mean, I think this is a worldwide problem for those who want to be conductors. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can speak from secondary experience because my husband's a conductor. Right. So he he's currently an, an apprentice conductor for an orchestra in Toronto. And when he got that position, he was told that there were 500 applicants. And it's a non-paid position. So, I mean, that gives you kind of an idea of how desperate people are to to find a place to even practice.
0: It's almost thinking that, you know, orchestras, I mean, I I love listening to orchestras, um, but if you've got a full orchestra, I mean, that's a lot of people on stage. And so that's a lot of money to move those sorts of orchestras around, um, which is why I think chamber orchestras are a little bit easier because not quite as big, still pretty big, but not quite as big. Mm-hmm. But it makes you wonder whether we need to go down another step to give more opportunities for people.
1: Certainly. I mean, I've, I've looked at several articles that were critiquing music education and, and how we might offer um, more podium time for potential conductors. And that was one of the suggestions that, you know, we give them a chamber orchestra and give them X amount of hours to practice with them. And, right. you know, I think that that's a great stepping stone, but it's still not the same experience as being at the helm of a full orchestra. Uh,
0: yeah. But I, I also think, though, to get more people, you know, we, we, you talked about um, that there's so many, not conditions, there's so many, there's a certain way that you behave when you go to a concert, mm-hmm. an orce- orchestral concert. Well, sometimes I think we need to sort of break that down too to get more people interested in going to those sorts of concerts. And it, you can look at things like opera. They've cha- Opera has changed over the years. They've still got the main operas and things, but they've also got ones that are can still be considered opera, but are, um, are pitching to a different audience. Yeah. And so I'm wondering whether... One of the issues with the number of of conductors that we can get and in particular how many women can get into there is that we need to change what people think about classical music and is there a different way of showcasing it to reach a different audience. You reach a different audience, then there's another group of people that you can bring in to be conducting and, and things like that.
1: Certainly. Yeah. Um, I think that that's starting to change a little bit. I know the TSO, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, has done a few concerts even during the pandemic in the last month or so um, that were geared towards school audiences. So they were streamed right. online, which is wonderful. Uh, and I think we need more of that. I think we need variance in what's offered so that it does appeal to a different audience. And I think that a lot of women... Do try to step outside of the box, and I wonder if that was part of the resistance, at least initially, that they they were trying to introduce these new ideas, and the establishments didn't really like oh, that. I like
0: it, right? Yes, good point. But
1: then I also think that there's a fine balance that those orchestras have to walk because you know they're trying to make money, and it's yeah. difficult right now. A lot of classical orchestras are losing money because they don't have the audience base, so then they have yeah. to think. Do we cater towards our traditional audience that wants to come and have this really, uh, you know, traditional sort of experience where the expectations are set? Or do we step outside of the box and invite new people in, but take the chance of alienating those people?
0: Right. Oh, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not an easy thing, is it?
1: No, nothing's but, easy. But-
0: <laughs> and you've only just started. I, I, this could take you longer than you think. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> it can be quite scary, I would imagine. But I, 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 I'd be interested to see how it goes because I, you know, it's one of those areas I think with like classical music and any sort of form of entertainment. We have to change with the times. There's nothing to say. I mean, I am I can be quite a traditionalist at, at the best of times, but I also realize you can have tradition, but you can also bring in new creativity to, to bring in new audiences. So you, you won't necessarily lose the old if you keep some traditions, but you might bring in a whole new subset, which can open doors for all sorts of things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is something that I've kind of learned about myself throughout this process, too, is that my own education has been very traditional in the way that I've learned music, the way that I've come to understand these expectations. And I absolutely think that we need to offer um, variance in, in programming and the way that the audience is expected to behave. I think that we need to loosen things up a little bit, but at the same time, I find myself hesitant to say let's throw it all out the window because it's been meaningful to me in my own life as well. So again, I it's it's interesting for me to consider this because I need to try to find some balance in in the way that I'm thinking about it as well.
0: Right. And I th- and I guess one of the things I'd like to move on to now, I think we could talk about this forever because <laughs> I find it fascinating. Because <laughs> I can put parallels to what happened, what's happened in sport over the years and mm-hmm. things of how they've had to adapt. And um, But I think uh, not losing the fact that the reason for you doing this work right now is to look at the equitable hiring um, of conductors in particular for women in Canada. So mm-hmm. um, it'd be interesting to see how you go with that, because I, I wonder whether there's enough information for you to go on or whether you need to make it a bit further to look at female conductors in general, um, whether that's just a little side chapter of this is what's happening in the world and then this is what's happening in Canada kind of thing.
1: Well I wonder that too I may have to broaden it a little bit because my experience has been when I worked on my previous research project that a lot of people are really hesitant to talk about it because especially in Canada it's such a small community and in my Mm. research you know obviously I would try to promise anonymity, but that's not something that you can guarantee because it is such a small community. And if you say, you know, I spoke to this violinist from the TSO, you only have so many options. Uh, (laughs) So They could probably figure it out. So again, I haven't gotten that far. It depends on how people, how comfortable people are with actually speaking to me, but I'm by no means well-connected, but because of my own education and my teacher's, I have connections to several people who are involved. So thinking about how small, you know, the music community is, I think it might be a little bit difficult.
0: But I'm sure you can find out something, though, that's going to be of interest to the profession in general. Well, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna place my bets You're going to. I hope someone <laughs> <That plan> will <laughs> speak
1: to me, and if not, I can at <laughs> least you know speak about what I know is happening.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think, and then sometimes that's all you know. Sometimes that's what we need to do is at least put the the topic out there mm-hmm. for people to go. Oh, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, Because sometimes if we don't say it, no one's, no one's, you know, none aware of what's going on.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think, like I said, I think the the Canadian classical music scene just doesn't get discussed much outside of Canada. So if nothing else, I hope that maybe I'll shine a a bit of a light on it.
0: (laughs) Which is fantastic. Now, the one thing I do want to, if you wouldn't mind touching on just briefly for me, is your involvement with a program called Rise, Shine and Sing yeah um, could you tell me just a little bit about that I know you're not the, the main person running it but yes. you are you have been involved in it
1: yeah I've been involved since September so I've been very fortunate to work with dr. Renahan who is my supervisor and dr. Brooke who is also on my committee they are running this program called rise shine and sing which is fabulous and I'm so excited to be a part of it I'm so grateful that they asked me to be a part of it this year um, so I'm one of the research assistants and what it is, is a research creation project that invites generally elderly people to come and be a part of music and theater. So the idea behind it was that um, that portion of the population often gets forgotten when music creation Gosh. and theater is happening. So it's an opportunity. And you know, during the pandemic, it's been run online, which makes it even more accessible. We've had participants from care homes um, come to the sessions, and they get the opportunity to sing, to move, um, to professionals who run both of those elements and offer lots of entry points for people to, to participate where they feel comfortable. So we've done songs like California Dreamin', Glow, Four Strong Winds, uh, Autumn Leaves. Those are all things that we've covered in the last few weeks. And then we get suggestions for movements that kind of interpret the lyrics, but people are are able to add in their own movements and express what they feel as they're singing and moving. So that's wonderful. But what I'm also noticing over the last few weeks is it's a growing sense of community. It's a place that people come and connect with each other online every week through music and through theater. And it's, it's such a cool thing to be a part of. I'm really enjoying it.
0: It's interesting, actually, because a lot of times you see in some of these um, OAP homes, sorry, old age pensioner homes. I'm, I can't remember what you call them here in Canada. Sorry, <laughs> I'm going back to my Australian roots there. Um, but all, all you see is people going in and playing music for them to listen to. So they're just sitting there listening. What I liked about when I read about uh, this program is that you're actually getting uh, the men and women to play music or like sing, play music, move to it, which is so much better for them than just sitting in a chair and listening. I mean, I mean, if they can't, of course, there's, there's those parts. But if they are able to get up and move around or even sit in the chair and move um, to the music, I think that's just fantastic.
1: Well, that's what's so wonderful about it is there's no pressure to participate. They don't have to do anything in particular um, it's open to, to what they're comfortable with and what they're able to do. But you're exactly right. They, they can participate at will and they can be part of this bigger group. And I think it's not even just about the music and the movement, which is absolutely important, but I think it's also the connection with the wider community yes. that they're, they're mm. now part of being able to interact with all of these other people that they wouldn't normally be able to see. And especially right now, when, you know, a lot of visitors can't come in, I think it's such an important thing to offer.
0: It would be great too down the track because um, I mean, there's nothing, no reason to say that this couldn't be done in, in a swimming pool. Oh,
1: that would be an interesting <laughs> experiment.
0: They, I mean, because they do have the, the swimming things anyway, but putting music in it as well. So they're moving with the, in the pool, which of course is non-weight bearing. So it's sometimes a little easier for people
1: yeah that would be a really interesting project for the future wouldn't it yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) so I've got more things for you guys today (laughs) just come to me I've got some ideas (laughs) keep it coming that's great (laughs) (laughs) well Cheryl we're gonna have to call it quits there Um, like I said I I could keep talking to you because I think what you're doing is is fascinating I love music anyway so uh, it makes it easy when I I know the subject, so to speak, not, not quite in the same way as you do, of course, but um, it's been fascinating talking to you and I wish you the best of luck because I think your, your topic is, is an important one, actually, for, for classical music in general and then for the Canadian classical music scene. I think that's very, very important and also for women and, and people of, you know, not the white male, also to think about how can they be a part of this amazing um, entertainment.
1: Well, thank you. I certainly hope that it opens doors and at least encourages conversation.
0: Well, you've done that already. And like I said, I'm happy to come in and help you continue that conversation.
1: <laughs> that would be wonderful. Maybe I can come back when I have a little more information.
0: <laughs> I would love I would love that actually, because I know it's, it's difficult when you're just starting out of how much, because at the moment, a lot of it is it's your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you delve in deeper, it leaves a sort of shut one door, and maybe open another or completely open the door (laughs) and you'll be flooded with information and you think how can I stop I've got too much here (laughs) so um, it would be great for you to to come back on I'd love that
1: thank you I hope the latter happens I hope that I have tons of information to share
0: (laughs) (laughs) like I said whatever you find is still going to be interesting so so don't so don't forget that part thank you Okay, everyone, that's it. Another week of grad chat suddenly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download this podcast tomorrow on either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. Just type in a grad chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.